Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, there's some things that one should probably never fall in love with. Uh, for instance, for over 60 years now, I have had a passionate love affair with peanut butter. So, uh, you know, I, I love peanut butter ice cream, particularly chocolate peanut butter ice cream, peanut butter cake, peanut butter pie, peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and jam, uh, peanut butter on a saltine cracker, peanut butter on a rich cracker, peanut butter on just about any cracker. I like peanut butter on a piece of celery or peanut butter on a slice of apple. I like peanut butter on my fingers just fine by me. I love Reese's peanut butter cups. And I uh, frankly have been known to smear a little bit of peanut butter on an Oreo cookie from time to time. Gave you a new idea to try, right? I love chunky peanut butter, smooth peanut butter. Planter, Skippy, Peter Pan, Jif, generic, it doesn't matter. I love peanut butter. Now, along with that love of peanut butter has come a 50-plus year feeling of guilt. That goes back to when I was probably about 10 years old and going to my pediatrician, Dr. Boyle. Didn't matter if I was going for an earache or a sore throat. He'd always throw me on the scale as if that had anything to do with anything. And then he would say, you're overweight, too much peanut butter. As if he had much room to talk, he was pretty rotund himself. <laughs> but I always have lived with this sense of foreboding about my love of peanut butter. Well, you know, four years ago, I had a heart attack. I had to have two stents, one for a 70% blockage, one for a 99% blockage. And, you know, when all that happened, I couldn't help but think, peanut butter. Finally caught up to me, right? Dr. Boyle said it would. Well, I, I exaggerate a little bit to make a point. And that is that we all tend to fall in love with things that aren't good for us. In, in some cases, we actually love things that could kill us. We know they're not good for us, but we go on loving them sometimes to our own ruin. You know, spiritually speaking, the Bible says there's one thing we dare not fall in love with. The Bible says that the most dangerous thing any of us could ever do is fall in love with the world. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When it's talking about the world here, it's, it's talking about this old world system, as if you, know, you draw a line between heaven and earth and forget everything above the line. You leave God out of the equation and you act as if this world is all there is and you look for your satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world alone. John says, don't do that. Don't love the world or the things of the world. 
If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Similarly, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. I like the Phillips translation of this. It says, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. James, in James chapter 4, says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Bible paints a choice for us as believers. We have a choice to walk by faith, to love God and do his will, or we can love this world and walk by sight and let the world squeeze us into its mold. John warns that to love the world is to flirt with danger because this world and its desires are passing away. If we tie our affections and fortunes to the world rather than to God, we're asking for big trouble. The story of Lot in Genesis 19 is a good illustration of how dangerous it is to get too close to this old world, as represented in the story by the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know about Lot's relationship to Sodom. It goes back to Genesis chapter 13, where in that passage, Abram and Lot's flocks have become too large that they can't stay together any longer. They've got to separate. And Abram says to Lot, you go first. You take your pick of the land before us. And and, and Lot looks over the Jordan River Valley, beautiful and well-watered, and he says, I'll take that and leave scrubby old Canaan for Uncle Abram. And so Lot moves into the beautiful river valley, and it says in chapter 13, verse 12, that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he not only moves into the river valley, but he moves close to the cities, and especially Sodom, and he pitches his tent apparently right outside of Sodom. By chapter 14, we know that Lot has moved into Sodom. He's no longer pitched his tent outside. Now he's living in Sodom because when the foreign kings come and invade the land and ransack the five cities of the, of the valley, it tells us in chapter 14, verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. And of course, that all necessitates Uncle Abram coming to the rescue and, and, and delivering Lot and the other people of, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, delivering them from the hand of those enemies. But Lot has gone from living outside of Sodom to now living inside of Sodom by chapter 14. Fast forward about 20 years and you come to chapter 19 and now Lot is not only living in Sodom, he's got a seat in the city gate of Sodom. It tells us in chapter 19, verse 1, that, that Lot is sitting in the, the gate of the city. And that was a prestigious thing, because uh, to sit in the city gate meant that you had been accepted as one of the elders of the city. You were, you were like a judge there. Uh, matters of dispute were, were brought to the city gate to be decided by the, the judges, the elders. Uh, real estate transactions happened there. All kinds of things, official business happened in the city gate. And Lot had a seat there in the city gate. So he's really become part of Sodom. But now here in chapter 19, little does Lot know but that he and his family are in grave danger because of the judgment of God that is about to rain down on this wicked city where Lot has settled in and made himself at home. And so chapter 19 becomes a cautionary tale for us that shows us that to love the world is to invite ruin. To love the world is to invite ruin. And we're going to see, as we go along in this story, 
of, of Lot's skin of the teeth deliverance from the judgment of Sodom, uh, we're going to see here two ways that, that we also can invite ruin in our lives by loving the world too much. So we pick up the story where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16. The Lord and two angels, three, appearing as three men, have been visiting with Abram and Sarah. And the Lord tells them that about this time next year, the, the three are going to come back. And by that time, Abram and Sarah are going to have a son. Sarah, at the age of 90, is going to bear her first child. And Abram's going to become a father again at the age of 100. This is such a ridiculous idea that Sarah laughs out loud, as you may remember last week. And she's rebuked by the Lord who says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, having completed their business with Abram and Sarah, now renamed Abraham and Sarah, uh, they, the, uh, the three are about to leave. And so two of the men, the angels, head on down to Sodom and Gomorrah to check the situation out, to assess whether things are really as bad as, as, uh, as, as they're inclined to believe. Uh, they're going to uh, destroy Sodom. And, and so the Lord stays behind and he explains to, to Abram that destruction is about to fall on the cities of the valley because the outcry uh, rising up to heaven has become so great. So many people have been victims of what's going on down there. And Abram then begins to bargain with the Lord. He says to the Lord, is it, is it right that the righteous should perish along with the wicked? What if, Lord, there are 50 righteous people left in those cities. Would you still destroy it? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you spare it for the sake of 50 righteous people? And God says, yeah, for 50 people, I would withhold my hand of judgment. So Abram kind of pushes a little farther. He says, what about for 45? For five people, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go ahead and destroy the city, would you? And the Lord says, no, if there are 45 righteous people there, I won't destroy the cities. So Abram says, what about for 40? What about for 30? What about for 20? What about for 10? He gets the Lord all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, no, if there are even 10 righteous people down there, I, I won't destroy the cities. Well, Abram is apparently satisfied with that. Uh, he must figure that there must be at least 10 righteous people down there in those five cities and the surrounding towns. And so uh, he lets the Lord go his way. And it tells us that uh, in verse one of chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. There he is in that place of honor. When Lot saw them, these two angels who appear as men, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, it may be that Lot recognizes that these strangers will be in danger if they remain out in the town square. He wants to get them off the streets just as soon as he can to get them out of harm's way. But certainly what we see here is Middle Eastern hospitality in play again. It was the sacred obligation of Middle Eastern hospitality to welcome strangers like this and to feed them. And, and when you brought them into your home, then you assumed a sacred obligation to protect them as long as they were under your roof. And, and so they have come in to enjoy this feast in Lot's home, but verse 4 says, before they lay down, the men of the city, 
The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So it's not just a few. This is, this is like all the men of the city turn out. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, if the angels needed any evidence of how bad things had become in Sodom, here it is. All of the men of the town turn out demanding to have their way sexually with these two visitors. Now, Lot has lived in Sodom a long time, but he still has enough of a moral compass left to know that what the men of the city are demanding is utterly wrong. At the same time, He's lost enough of his moral compass to think that what he offers these men is any better. Verse 6 goes on to say, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Somehow, Lot thinks that his obligation to protect these strangers is greater than his obligation to protect his own daughters. But the men of the city aren't interested in the women. Lot pleads with them to leave these men alone. If anything happens to them, it will be to his shame as their host. He has a sacred obligation to protect these guests. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. This is a picture of worldliness gone crazy. I have a seminary professor by the name of Dr. David Wells who gave this definition of worldliness I think is really on target He said, worldliness is that system of values in any age which has as its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteous and makes righteousness seem strange. It thus gives the plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Sound familiar? Worldliness is basically life lived upside down, where wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong. The men of Sodom are banging on Lot's door, essentially saying, hey, you chose to live here. You did business with us. You made out pretty well. You've made a comfortable living. You've enjoyed our hospitality. We welcomed your family. We even gave you a seat in the gate of the city, a place of honor. You seem to, to like it here. You made a nice life among us. You never had any complaints about any of that. And now you're going to act all high and mighty and stand in judgment of us? Who do you think you are to tell us we're in the wrong? If you think we were going to do something bad to those men, just wait and see what we're going to do to you. And it's here we see the first way love for the world invites ruin. It's this. A person who enjoys the world's perks will soon be made to pay the world's price. A person who enjoys the world's perks will soon be made to pay the world's price. Lot enjoyed what Sodom had to offer him and his family. 
He lived there and made a home there, even though 2 Peter 2 tells us that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. In other words, there was a part of Lot that this whole time was grieved by the wickedness of Sodom. But he apparently never spoke up about it. He, he must have led everyone to believe that he was okay with what was going on there. They just saw him as one of the guys. They gave him a seat in the city gate. But one day, they came to collect the rent. And when Lot wouldn't pay up, they threatened his life. Look, when you enjoy the world's perks, you will soon be expected to pay the world's price. When you make this world your home, the world is one day going to come and expect the rent. It's the teen who accepts pills from a friend and likes the way they make him feel. And then when he's starting to need those pills, his friend says, well, you can have more, but you're going to have to pay for them, you know. It's the woman who's impressed by how her date, first date, spares no expense on the meal that they enjoy together, only to find out when he takes her home that now he expects her to pay up. It's when the vendor delivers product you desperately need at an unbelievable price, but before he leaves, he says, I need cash payment, and it has to be under the table. It's the group of popular moms who invite you into their circle, and you're enjoying their attention only to find out that the price of admission is your willingness to dish gossip on other women who count you as a friend. It's the politician who takes a big fat campaign donation only to be leaned on later to vote a certain way. The world has a way of saying to us, come on in, settle down, settle down and make yourself at home. We've got so much to offer you only to learn later what it will really cost you. And if you refuse to pay, they turn on you and threaten you. To love the world is to invite ruin. A person who enjoys the world's perks will soon be made to pay the world's price. Well, Lot does his best here, too little, too late to stand up to the world he has become so much a part of. The world is about to break his door down, demanding payment. When this happens, verse 10 says, but the men, the angels, inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, now it must be the middle of the night, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Here's the second way love for the world can invite ruin in our lives. First, a person who enjoys the world's perks will soon be made to pay the world's price. And secondly, a family that gets immersed in the world will soon be lost to the world. A family that gets immersed in the world will soon be lost to the world. Lot's sons-in-law are so immersed in Sodom 
that they can't imagine that it could be destroyed. I mean, they were so at home at Sodom, they couldn't imagine what was wrong with the place. Why would the Lord want to judge this place? They, they were part of Sodom, lock, stock, and barrel, sold out to Sodom's values. They didn't see anything wrong with the place. They laughed at Lot, thought he was off his rocker. They weren't about to leave all this behind. They think he's joking. It reminds me of a parable once told by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He describes a crowded theater that hosted a variety show with various acts. Each act was better than the one before it, and so it created an atmosphere where the applause, as the show went on, the applause grew louder and, and louder and more enthusiastic. Suddenly, a clown rushed onto the stage and said, I apologize for this interruption, but I regret to inform you that our theater is on fire. You need to leave right away and in an orderly fashion. But the audience thought he was part of the act. So they laughed and they applauded. They thought that he was very committed to his role. But the clown again implored them that they needed to leave right away or they would be seriously injured, maybe even die. And again, they greeted him with loud and thunderous applause. At last, he could do no more. And so he left the building and the people were destroyed. And Kierkegaard concludes in this sobering way. He says, our age will go down in fiery destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but to applause and cheering. That was also Lot's sons-in-law, who went down to fiery destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but laughing at silly old Lot. What a clown. After the moral compromises Lot himself had made uh, to live in that wicked city, it was, it was hard for these young men to take him seriously as a moral authority. It's like, you love it here as much as we do, Lot. Get real. You can't be serious. Judgment's about to fall? Come on. They were the first two of Lot's family to be lost to the world. We'll see others as we go on. Verse 15 says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Even at this, he drags his heels. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. In spite of the horrors of the previous night, this family is so immersed in Sodom that they can't tear themselves away. They don't want to leave. And it's only by the mercy of the God, angels taking them by the hand, forcibly dragging them out of the city. And verse 17 says, And as they brought them out, one said, one of the angels said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills. It's like he's saying, Yeah, I'm an old, old dude. I can't make it all the way up there. I won't have time to get up there lest the disaster overtake me and I die. I mean, are you kidding me? Lot has the chutzpah to try and dictate the terms of his own rescue. If Lot has to, to leave the city with all of its worldly comforts and attractions, maybe the angels will let him go, you know, to a small city. He seems to want to hang on to at least a little bit of Sodom. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, he says in verse 20, and it's a little one. Can't be any harm in a little one. 
Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, the angel said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, little. So finally, Lot and his family are out of harm's way. For Abraham's sake, God has spared the righteous, though it's a, a stretch of God's mercy even to call Lot and his family righteous anymore. They may now be out of Sodom, but there's still a lot of Sodom left in them. And so the judgment falls. Verse 23 says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, so now the sun is up. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Here's casualty number three. Remember we said that a family immersed in the world will be lost to the world Lot's wife was obviously immersed in Sodom. Sodom had gotten into her to such a degree that she did not want to live without it. She looked back because that's where her heart was. She looked back because that's where she still wanted to be. And when the sulfur and rain and ash came down, she was frozen forever. And she looked longingly back to Sodom. Clovis Chappelle writes about how when Pompeii was being excavated, there was found a body there that had been embalmed by the ashes of Vesuvius. It was the body of a woman frozen in place. Her feet were turned toward the gates of the city as if she was trying to escape, but her face was turned back toward something that had fallen just beyond her reach. The prize for which those frozen fingers were reaching was apparently a bag of pearls, now, they might have been pearls that she herself had dropped and wanted to recover, or maybe they had been dropped by somebody else and she saw them and wanted to take them away. Be that as it may, though death was hard at her heels and rescue was beckoning to her just beyond the gate, she couldn't shake off the spell of those pearls. She had turned to pick them up, and death was her reward. But it was not the eruption of Vesuvius that made her love those pearls more than life itself. The ashes of Vesuvius only froze her in that attitude of greed. And so also Lot's wife is frozen in place, not just by the sulfur and fire and ash that rained down that day, but frozen in place by her love of Sodom, her unwillingness to leave that life behind. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The implication here is that if it hadn't been for Abraham and his intercession, Lot might have perished in the conflagration that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. By the mercy of God and by the intercession of Abraham, Lot was spared. And there's, I think, an important lesson for us. If you have loved ones, family, friends, who are 
so in love with the world that they're headed for disaster, the very best thing you can do is cry out to God for mercy on their behalf. Intercede for them, pray for them, and keep praying for them that the Lord might deliver them. But Lot, though he was spared, paid a steep price in the way he lost his family to Sodom's grip on their hearts. First his sons-in-law, then his wife, and then the story ends by showing how ingrained Sodom was in the thoughts and, and, and the heart of his daughters. Because at the end of chapter 19, verses 30 through 38, you have this sordid story about how now Lot and his daughters are living in a cave up in the, the hills. They've, they finally decided that's the best place to be, where the angels told them to go in the first place. And they're looking back over the valley and seeing all this destruction, not a soul left alive. And the girls are saying to each other, where are we ever going to find husbands now that we can start families and, and have babies? And they come up with this idea that surely is a reflection of the, the mentality of Sodom, the, the, the world in which they had been immersed all their lives. And they say, here's what we can do. Since there are no other eligible guys around, we'll get dad drunk and then one of us will go into him one night and the other will go into him the other night and we'll try and conceive children by him. And that's what happens. And two babies uh, are, are conceived and, and given birth because of, of that incestuous relationship. One is called Moab, which means my father. And the other is named Ben-Ami, which means son of my kinsman. Both of those names point to the, the sordid way these children came into the world. Even after the destruction of Sodom, the mentality of Sodom remained in these young women. And in his drunkenness, Lot carries out the very shameful act he had suggested to the men of Sodom back in verse 8. He takes the virginity of his own daughters. And the conduct of the girls shows how Sodom's influence is, is so much ingrained in them. Their acts of incest show that Sodom is still in their hearts. Somehow that made sense to them, raised as they were with Sodom's values to have children by their father. And the result is two tribal groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who will in generations to come be thorns in the side of their Israelite cousins, two peoples who bore the stink of their sordid origins. Lot's family had been immersed in Sodom, and he ultimately lost them to Sodom. And that's one of the ways people who love the world invite ruin. When your family is immersed in the world, it will likely be lost to the world. Now that's not to say that if you have a kid who in adulthood doesn't follow Jesus, that it's all your fault. Because even godly parents, even great parents, will have children who will go their own way and turn away from the Lord. But what I can say is that all too often I've seen a pattern of, of parents losing their kids to the world. Now, it kind of happens this way. The first generation, the parents, uh, put a strong emphasis on following Christ. They trust Christ as their Savior and follow him as their Lord. They live with a sense of gratitude that on the cross, Jesus took their place and paid the penalty of their sin. They live by faith that Jesus rose from the dead and, and lives again, in them, enabling them to live the life that God always meant for us to live. 
They made sure that the family went to church every Sunday because they believed that was important for reinforcing the faith. And, and they read the Bible at home and they prayed together and they lived out the faith all week long. Their Christian principles guided their choices of entertainment and the use of their leisure time and the choice of friends. And the kids who grew up in that home, you know, go off and, and they get married themselves. And, and here's Junior and his wife who grew up similarly in a Christian home and they get married and they decide, yeah, they're going to follow Christ, but maybe not be so uptight as mom and dad were about it all. They'd each ask Jesus into their hearts when they were little and they have memories of going to Sunday school and, and vacation Bible school and they're fond memories. And, and so they take their family to church when they don't have anything better to do. Like, you know, kids' sports leagues or weekend trips to the amusement park or frankly, you know, just sleeping in because the, the week that they had was so difficult. And so following Jesus isn't so much a weekday thing, an everyday thing, it's a kind of a Sunday thing, which means it becomes a once or twice a month thing. Christian principles rarely get discussed at home, especially as it applies to things like choosing your entertainment or the use of your leisure time or the choice of friends. And, and now that generation uh, has raised their kids and generation three is getting launched and making their own choices and, and mom and dad can't say a whole lot about it, but grandma and grandpa are heartbroken to learn that their granddaughter is moving in with a man to whom she's not yet married. And no one in the family goes to church much anymore. Grandkids hardly ever talk about Jesus except maybe to use his name as a swear word. And at the Thanksgiving table, when grandpa's leading in a prayer of Thanksgiving on behalf of the family, well, the kids are kind of looking at each other with a smirk and rolling their eyes. I'll stop with the third generation because it'd probably be too painful to talk about what happens in generation four. But I've seen this pattern over and over and over again in my years of ministry. To love the world is to invite ruin. A person who enjoys the world's perks will soon be made to pay the world's price. And a family that gets immersed in the world will soon be lost to the world. Lord Kenneth Clark was a scholar internationally known for his television series, Civilization. He lived and died without faith in Christ. But he admitted in his autobiography that once, while visiting a beautiful church for one of his programs on civilization, while visiting this beautiful church, he had what he believed was an overwhelming religious experience. He wrote, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I'd ever known before. But this flood of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he'd have to change. And maybe his family would think he'd lost his mind. And all of that could be for something that might prove to be an illusion. So he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Beware of being too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Because God's word says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Let's pray. Father, we confess that all too often we're tempted to buy into this old world's lie. The lie that all we ever need, all we could ever want is is right here in this old world system. We can do it without God, without any consideration of him in our lives. And even as believers, sometimes we, we buy into that lie and we get way too close to this world. We let the world squeeze us into its mold. And when we do that, we pay a dear price. But Lord, we're thankful for the message of Genesis 19, sobering though it may be. It helps us to realize the truth of your word that that there's a danger in loving the world that way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take your word and, and use it as a check in our spirits today that each of us would, would examine ourselves and say, where are the places where I'm just too close, too attached to the things of this world, to this old world system, to this world's way of doing things? What would it look like if I truly was devoted to following God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What would it look like if I was sold out to obeying his word and living life his way? Lord, I pray that we we would not be so committed to the ways of this world that we cannot change. I pray that by your grace and by your mercy, you would wake us up, help us to see to be solely devoted to you and to your way, to realize that we are in this world, but not of it. We are called to go into this world in Jesus' name, but not not to settle down and be part of it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Lord, help us by your grace and by the power of your spirit to live for you because there is our joy. There is our victory. Lord, I pray, teach us to live in that victory for Jesus' sake, for your glory and our good. Amen.